Happy Poetry Month, Claire. Happy Poetry Month, Anar. It's so good to be a poetry lover in April. Mm -hmm. We know that this episode might find you towards the tail end of the month, but we've had a really thrilling month celebrating poetry. Here in Austin, there's been an abundance of readings. We celebrated the launch of Gemini Gospel, our latest chapbook by Bianca Elisa Perez, and had a little bash here in our office space. Um, Kind of a big bash. Yeah, it was a great turnout. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a massive cake. And in preparation for this episode, I think we've both um, been devouring quite a bit of poetry. Yes, simply because we're both so indecisive (laughs) and I did give us a loose prompt. So today we each had to bring something old and something new to share for Poetry Month. And that was, I thought, a really simple idea. And it turned out to be sort of complex or at least complex in terms of making those choices. But the upside of that is, yes, I read a ton of poetry in and out of my wheelhouse uh, in order to make those decisions. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah, fun's fun's a good word for it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So last year, around this time, we launched the What the Hell is Poetry series because, you know, we've talked about how you read so much poetry that you just begin to question everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you kind of go back to the beginnings. So Claire, this prompt, this very open prompt, like threw me all the way back to the original canon of poetry, thinking Mm -hmm. about how poetry was once just a solely oral medium, storytelling, unwritten. And then You know, you hear like the Epic of Gilgamesh was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, quote unquote, epic poem, you know, and then it just, it really broke my brain. You gave me too broad (laughs) of a prompt, but it's so good. And, you know, I always refer to myself kind of as a feral poetry person um, in that my schooling didn't ever put a great emphasis on poetry that personally interested me. Mm. I've grown to be really passionate about international literature, but a lot of my learning is extremely contemporary compared to ancient poetry. Yeah. So I don't kick it as far back as you do, because you do have some old, (laughs) old poetry. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'll be exploring two poets today that I hadn't encountered yet and really enjoyed. That's amazing. Yeah, I I definitely didn't read a ton of ancient poetry until I was asked to for a class, but I've always really loved it. And I do think that my, we talked about this last year with our beloved late friend, Joe. I do think that some of my love for poetry originated from the Bible, 
<laughs> yeah, because it was like language that was resonant and song-like and didn't have sometimes the most obvious meaning. And that was seductive and mysterious and interesting to me. And it was full of spirit. I think I felt that way when I read the Epic of Gilgamesh and other ancient poems as well, that some of the inaccessibility combined with the lovely like musical structure of the language just makes it feel so much more resonant and meaningful and like a cave you kind of need to explore, not just someone spitting meaning and ideas in your face like some of our <laughs> uh, contemporary poets do, which is also great. It's just a different kind of connection, I think, to to what we love about poetry. So yeah, I, I'm into it, but it takes a lot of work, you know, like it's not giving you sometimes the most surface level accessibility. Yeah. I like that. Um, I do think that there's also something to be said about reading non-contemporary poetry with others, with a Mm. group, with, um, people who have a passion for it. So it is one of those things where it's like, I would just love to experience poetry through a classroom because, yeah, sometimes you mm-hmm, lose. Mm-hmm. I think we all have a little bit of of history that that we're missing. And, yeah, academics will guide you through. No one's read all the poetry, (laughs) you know, you're not alone. It's not like, yeah, a cohesive poetry education even exists. I think we're all just piecing it together. (laughs) But I want to read all the poetry. That's what this month Mm -hmm. is a great reminder of, you know, and it doesn't end this month. We say this, we say this every year, but, but this month does push us to really, really investigate what's going on or what has happened or where poetry came from or what makes something a poem. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, you broke my brain. Well, Thank you. You're welcome. I love this idea of something old, something new. It's sing-songy. It's almost like a children's rhyme or something. It feels so lighthearted. And yet, to me, the idea is that there's going to be such obvious relationships between ancient poetry and the most ancient poetry and the most contemporary poetry is going to have a kinship. And there's something in poetry which we can't define, which carries it through time. And I think you and I are both going to definitely put definitions to the reasons we chose our old and new poems side by side, because they do have specific common themes or ideas, but I just love that there is nothing about ancient poetry that is so inaccessible or uh, obscure that we can't relate to it now. And that's really incredible. And it's really incredible to see it continue to influence poets of today, even if they're not aware of it. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, you should always know your history and your lineage Mm -hmm. and and your peers, despite how far back or forward they might span. Yeah, I'm getting weird now. So so I'll just go ahead and 
introduce my theme. So I tried to start back in time, but what did the trick was reading a book of poetry that I had on my nightstand waiting for me. And then kind of thinking of certain themes that may have been written about in the past. And then I found a really incredible poem. So I'm ashamed to say I've never read Lord Byron before. Hey, you know, you're not the only one. Come on. (laughs) And I'm also ashamed to say that, like, he's pretty cool. Yeah, he's like very metal. Yeah, which (laughs) we learned last year reading Yeats that these old school dudes are kind of rad. Yeah. And it almost pains me to be like, oh, God, like, I'm missing <laughs> out, which mm-hmm. it's not a good feeling when you are as obsessed with language and poetry as we are. But so he wrote this poem in 1816 called Darkness. It's a bit of an epic poem. Language is is really accessible, but it was what could be described as a year with multiple apocalyptic events. Mm. And it was a particularly dark year. So this poem is a portrait of what that experience may have been like, um, but also a warning for Mm. future humanity. Wow. How resonant is that now? (laughs) Anar, would you tell us about these apocalyptic events from 1816? What I've been able to find is just that it says that there's like been multiple apocalyptic events, but in the year of 1816, uh, there was the eruption of Mount Tambora, Mm. which then cast sulfur into the atmosphere made it really dark. Yeah, there was just darkness, clouds. Um, It was also described as like, year without a summer, the eruption of Mount Tambora released sulfur into the atmosphere, reduced global temperatures. So it was dark. It was cold, Mm -hmm. especially in Europe. And so, you know, you add those elements, people are questioning their faith in God. Mm -hmm. I believe that there was some major fossil discoveries during this time, which, you know, when science kind of floats to the top, religion becomes a bit of a challenge. So we've got all these like kind of a hysteria Mm. and an awareness of humans limited opportunities on earth. Um, You know, I'm sure that nature was doing funky things. Mm -hmm. We've seen in the last few months here in the States, like what environmental damage can do to our local animals, the rivers, the lakes. Um, So I think that among this hysteria, we've got this poem, Darkness, that paints a really dark portrait of of what a dystopian or apocalyptic landscape could look like. Yeah. Wow, that's so hardcore. It's been, I think it's been a long time since a volcano has erupted anywhere in the world that has caused such lingering atmospheric disturbances. But 
I read this in Heaven's Breath that in my RB collection of essays about wind, that the volcanic ash and the particles that are left in the atmosphere, it disperses across the globe and it lasts for a long time. So if it was a major eruption, it makes sense that it would cause this sort of apocalyptic darkness. Mm-hmm. That would be so scary. Can you imagine? Especially if it's long term. So, yeah. you know, here in Austin, we do experience sandstorms, you know, mm. and we'll have about a week here in Austin where the sunsets are very beautiful, but you really shouldn't be outside for much more time than you need. It happens about once a year, mm-hmm. but that only lasts a week. Mm-hmm. I imagine maybe a year long event would make people very nervous. Yeah. Especially, you know, way before the information age where you don't know exactly what's going on. No one knows exactly what's going on. So yeah, if you didn't know, I would feel apocalyptic. So it's totally understandable. I'm really excited to hear this poem though. Okay. All right. Darkness. I had a dream, which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went, and came and brought no day, and men forgot their passions in the dread of this their desolation. And all hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light. And they did live by watchfires and the thrones, the palaces of crowned kings, the huts, the habitations of all things which dwell, were burnt for beacons. Cities were consumed and men were gathered round their blazing homes to look once more into each other's face. Happy were those who dwelt within the eye of the volcanoes, and their mountain torched. A fearful hope was all the world contained. Forest were set on fire, but hour by hour they fell and faded, and their crackling trunks extinguished with a crash, and all was black. The brows of men by the despairing light, wore an unearthly aspect, as by fits the flashes fell upon them. Some lay down and hid their eyes and wept, and some did rest their chins upon their clenched hands and smiled, and others hurried to and fro and fed their funeral piles with fuel, and looked up with mad disquietude on the dull sky the pall of a past world, and then again with curses cast them down upon the dust, and gnashed their teeth and howled. The wild birds shrieked, and terrified did flutter on the ground, and flap their useless wings. The wildest brutes came tame and tremulous, and vipers crawled and twinned themselves among the multitude, hissing but stingless, They were slain for food. And war, which for a moment was no more, did glut himself again. A meal was brought with blood. 
and each sate sullen apart, gorging himself in gloom. No love was left. All earth was but one thought, and that was death. Immediate and inglorious, and the pang of famine fed upon all entrails. Men died, and their bones were tombless as their flesh. The meager by meager were devoured. Even dogs assailed their masters, all save one, and he was faithful to a course, and kept the birds and beasts and famished men at bay till hunger clung them, or the dropping dead lured their lank jaws, himself sought out no food, but with a piteous and perpetual moan, and a quick desolate cry, licking the hand which answered not with a caress, he died. The crowd was famished by degrees, but two of an enormous city did survive, and they were enemies. They met beside the dying embers of an altar place where had been heaped a mass of holy things for an unholy usage. They racked up and shivering scrapped with their cold skeleton hands. The feeble ashes and their feeble breath blew for a little life and made a flame, which was a mockery. Then they lifted up their eyes as it grew lighter and beheld each other's aspects, saw and shrieked and died. Even of their mutual hideousness, they died, unknowing who he was upon whose brow famine had written fiend. The world was void, the populace and the powerful was a lump, seasonless, herbless, treeless, manless, lifeless, a lump of death, a chaos of hard clay. The rivers, lakes, and oceans all stood still, and nothing stirred within their silent depths. Ships sailorless lay rotting on the sea, and their masts fell down piecemeal as they dropped. They slept on the abyss without a surge. The waves were dead. The tides were in their grave. The moon, their mistress, had expired before. The winds were withered in the stagnant air, and the clouds perished. Darkness had no need of aid from them. She was the universe. Damn. (laughs) Excellent reading, by the way. Thank you. What a gorgeous reading of Darkness by Lord Byron. I'm very enthralled. I loved that poem. I love how dramatic it is. (laughs) But it's not wrong. History will show you time and time again that this is a portrait of environmental catastrophe, of war, of societies collapsing. This just happens all at once in this Mm. warning, in this story. Lord Byron tells. And it's about how we react as humanity to crisis, uh, whether it's environmental or wrought on by war. We revert back to these sort of animalistic beings who tear each other apart. Mm-hmm. And I was really struck by the one dog who didn't tear its master apart 
it was like it had more humanity than humankind. It was so loyal and good that it didn't fight for its own survival and of course was brought to a horrific death. Gosh. Wow. I'm not too familiar with some of the biblical nods and homages made in here, but I'm fairly certain there's a handful. Yeah. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth is a description of hell. Yeah. Doesn't this kind of have a Revelations uh, aura about it? I don't know if you ever encountered that book, but it reminds me of it, except very irreverent and lacking anything sacred. It's, It's so good. You know, wild as I am and filling in these gaps for my education. Um, I was shocked by how contemporary this felt. This could have been written this very day and not be out of place. Mm -hmm. I think eco-poetics and a lot of really great contemporary work um, is happening to bring attention to climate change. Mm Mm-hmm and the disastrous impacts it has on human life on top of just natural life. But when I read those last few lines in this poem, um, I really, really wanted to just share this. Um, Yeah, you knew I was going to love it. (laughs) Darkness had no need of aid from them. She was the universe. That, That rings differently. From what I know of contemporary eco-poetics, which reasonably so almost always contains a little bit of hope Mm -hmm. or a little bit of all to action, a little bit of dignity left for humankind, at least in our potential. And this poem does not, which feels more true, (laughs) unfortunately, Mm -hmm. those last few lines. It's like the tower in the tarot deck. It's like darkness is the universe. This is beyond your control and your power now. This is the universe speaking back to you. But I read a lot of Romantic era poets to get to this poem. Um, oh, hell yeah. Yeah. It was it was interesting because there were some of these poems that were like, nature is beautiful. How great is it to be alive? Which like, yes, that's sure. where I am a good chunk of the time when I don't look at my phone for 20 minutes, but (laughs) I I found it to be just super metal, um, just a bit gothic. Oh, yeah. So very gothic. I definitely will be doing some more exploring, but I was very thrilled to to read this and then pair it with with the book that I have for today, which I guess I should just say um, I brought Blood Snow by D.G. Akpik. Blood Snow was long listed for the Penn Vocler Award in Poetry. Hmm. And so poetry lovers, I'm sure you've seen this cover if you haven't already picked it up and read it, but it came out last fall and I finally opened it up and loved it as much as I expected to. So a little bit about D.G. Nanuk Okpik. Okpik was born in and spent much of her life in Anchorage, Alaska, 
She attended Salish Kootenai College, the Institute of American Indian Arts, and Stone Coast at the University of Southern Maine. Akpik has won the Truman Capote Literary Trust Award, the May Sarton Award, and an American Book Award for her first book, Corpse Whale. Blood Snow is her second book, published through Wave Books. Oh, I already want this book. <laughs> I will gladly leave it on your desk. Um, I really, really thought that you would enjoy this book. I will start with just a poem that I think, Claire, it reminded me of you. I really thought you would love it. It reminded me of our favorite modernist slash surrealist poet, Chika Sagawa. Mm. This one's really brief. Light years of humans. Absence, presence, may be a way. Humans and deep verse. A mockingbird tangled inside a body. Mm. That is a wonderful last line. <sighs> it's really beautiful. Yeah. But something that this collection does really well, you know, it's described as being kind of eco-poetics, but we do have these poems that are experiencing nature. Um, and there's a lot of snow in here, mm -hmm. but it, they're also painting a portrait of this kind of dystopian world that we're living in. Mm -hmm. There's environmental catastrophe in these beautiful poems that aren't, there's a sense of urgency, but there's also a sense of reality. And so Lord Byron was like, if this is our future, this is the way it's going to look. And in these poems, you're going to see some of these, some similarities and that mm -hmm. we're living alongside what we were warned. Yeah. Yeah. I love the subtlety of that poem and how humans in deep verse and the mockingbird tangled inside of a body. And I guess the duality of absence and presence in the first line are all sort of subtly suggesting this kind of entanglement that we have with um, a way of living that isn't quite right. It's really very few words and a lot to think about. Yeah. And these other poems are a little bit longer, but they're still sparse compared to Lloyd Byron. <laughs> um, okay. My first poem is Petrified Melt. I candle the liquid, myriad maze, pain rising, water levels. In salt, I measure my temperature and wind chill factor, dust born from old glacial ice, snow melting, I with cupped hands to mouth and cupped to lips drink the salt sea. Dissolving ocean, I pray for more land to mend my melee fused together by an abatement and weather. Tell me again what to say. Adoption. Copper. Coal. 
oil, 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 natural gas. I collect the ability to heal the destruction. Extract, extract, extract. A whistling buoy, afloat alone in spring thaw. Mm. It reminds me of visual art, mm-hmm. too, in the way that Lord Byron's poem as an image of destruction mm-hmm. of the planet would be like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. Mm-hmm. Where there's so many little details and it's just moving across this vast landscape to paint the entire portrait with as much maximalism as possible. And of course, these are minimalist. And so as these little splashes of images and thought across like a white landscape, yeah, it does, I think, provide more blank space for the mind to sort of ricochet between these mm-hmm. images, um, which can also be scary. <laughs> Blood Snow is the perfect title for this because, yeah, you mm-hmm. have this white snow and I do imagine like a blood splatter and not like completely like 100% just blood. Um, right. Yeah, of course. It's blood snow isn't just red snow in our brains. It's it's snow with a splash of red. <laughs> yeah. So gross and so beautiful at the same time. Yeah, but I do appreciate that Hieronymus, yeah, the Hieronymus Bosch. And then here we have almost a cleaner and stiller Mm -hmm. portrait. Um, My second poem is Ice Age 2. It starts with a quote from Barry Lopez that reads, Eskimo women who sat on driftwood logs, what they most dread. In the poem, Sunken sod of whalebone, earth houses rising out of feathered sea water, children's children, aunties as mothers, rapidly fading, hauntingly, drooped faces dangling, quickly now, see it now, as petals of wild roses and dewdrops root rot from nothing but lakes of methane gas. Mm, It's interesting, too, how these poems, of course, in, in our old and new mashup, these poems have a different language for the scientific element of what is happening Mm -hmm. and and I don't actually think it's that Byron's poem didn't have scientific language in it he's referencing the way the moon affects the tides and perhaps even this idea of survival of the fittest in nature but yeah DG's poems are referencing a whole other world of language that we now have for the dread that we can feel surrounding things like methane gas. Mm. It's really haunting. <sighs> this isn't, an, you know, and I'm just touching the surface. I picked poems that really would mm-hmm. complement darkness. Mm-hmm. But th- this is such an incredible collection. And I will definitely be leaving it on your desk, Claire. But if you don't already have it, go out in the world, support your local bookstore. Mm-hmm. 
Claire, I know I've taken up so much time already, and I'm just so desperate to hear what you've brought for us. Um, so whenever you're ready. Yeah, I think I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk about an image that kind of anchors these two poets, and there are certainly more uh, across time. And that is the image of the cicada. And if you read a lot of poetry, I feel like you've come across poems about cicadas or poems that feature a reference to a cicada in them. And that can be poetry from any era, which is perhaps something obvious to a poetic scholar. But for me, it was a a recent realization that I thought was really incredible. I, for my something old, have been reading Stone Garland, which is a collection of six poets from the Greek lyric tradition. It's an anthology edited by Dan Beachy Quick, who I learned from reading this is a genius and talks about poetry in really mesmerizing ways. And I just love this a uh, very specific selection of Greek poets who I hadn't read before. And the translations are absolutely gorgeous. This is from the Seed Bank series through Milkweed Editions. So I definitely recommend it. It's a very slender anthology. Very, very approachable if you want to get into some Greek poets. But yeah, ancient Greece, I thought, would be an interesting place to start yes. with something old. Okay, so... Apparently, the Greeks loved cicadas. It's an image that recurs through a lot of poets' work. It's not just specific to ancient Greece. I learned, of course, that ancient Chinese poets as well were known for loving the cicada and the meaning to be found in it. And it's it's interesting that this is an insect that goes beneath the ground and certain species live there alive, but in dormancy for up to 17 years. Mm. Uh, some species, it's only a couple years. Some species, it's like eight or 10, but up to 17 years alive beneath the ground. And then they emerge in swarms. So of course, it makes sense that this would be really mesmerizing for poets around the idea of resurrection. Like anything else that's buried in the ground for 17 years is dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then this bursting forth swarm of life is, is really pretty magical. I still can't believe that that's a real thing. <laughs> and it has been since ancient, ancient times. Gosh, um, really, really trippy, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure this hates my ignorance, but, um, I don't know why I just felt like cicadas were a very Southern, thing in the states um hmm. if you watch a film that takes place in you know texas or louisiana or you know just the southern american states the sound of cicadas is always part of the sound design um mm -hmm. so never did i imagine cicadas would be in different hemispheres and regions and all over the earth yeah. Yeah. There's different, of course, a lot of different species and they're a totally ancient insect that's been around, like I said, for seems like most of our existence, if not all of it. But yeah, you bring up sound, which is also, I think, another key 
element to why of all beautiful and amazing and weird insects in the world, why poets seem to really love to write about cicadas. And I do feel like specifically for ancient Greek poets, where the lyric poetry tradition started, the idea of poetry as song is what it's all about. That's how the lyric poetry tradition started. All poems were accompanied by song and written to be accompanied by the lyre. So cicadas make this really hypnotizing sound. You grew up with them. I also grew up with them, but they weren't in Missouri, they weren't around every summer. They We have the 13-year cicadas. And so I remember the first time I saw them, it just really freaked me out because I had never seen them before. Uh, it was really incredible and scary. Also kind of apocalyptic, but... They're very ugly. <laughs> I mean, if you don't like insects, I suppose so. They're so big. Yeah, they're but they're really docile. They're not... Uh, aggressive. And our main interaction with them is hearing their song mm -hmm. just ringing through the trees, especially these big swarms that emerge from the earth. It's like all of this buzzing and singing happening all at once. Um, and of course, that is the sound of males attracting females, at least in part. And so along with the idea of death and rebirth and transformation, there's this idea of love in, in the cicadas and their entire life cycle above ground is spent singing to attract love. So how could a poet not be enamored by that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's just a little crash course in, in what I learned about cicadas. Of course, poets of the ancient Chinese tradition are also known for the recurring theme of cicadas. And I know that in ancient China, they even had these jade carvings, little carvings of cicadas that they would place in the mouth of someone being buried. Wow. It was like a funerary, right? Similar to how the coin would be placed in, I believe in Greece, but in Europe, for sure. So that was really interesting too. I think that goes back to that idea of death and rebirth and hoping that the loved one in whose mouth you place the cicada would be able to, according to, you know, the Buddhist tradition, be reincarnated. So beautiful. My gosh. Yeah, there's just a lot. This is such a brief overview. So let's get to the poems. I love reading ancient Greek poets because of that song element. It is so, depending on the translation, it can be really apparent that these were written to be sung. And I really, I really think these translations are great. So the poet I'm reading, I'm just going to read one poem from this book from Stone Garland. And this poet's name is Anacreon. Something interesting about this poet is that there's a whole a series of poems from from this era that they attribute to Anacreon, but they aren't sure if they were his. And so sometimes those fragments are referred to as Anacreonata, which is kind of cool. But yes, this was a drunken lush of a poet, which is one of my favorite kinds of poets. Um, someone who wrote about pleasure, love, drinking, <laughs> a Dionysian poet, to be sure. So this particular song is dedicated to cicadas, and it is titled 
field song. We call you blessed, cicada, when from the high bent branch arch of trees you have drunk your pure little dew. How like a king, like an arrow string, you sing. You are one who is all things. In the far fields, you are as all you see. Great as the woods that bear the nut-bearing trees. You are dear friend of ground-tilling men, never hindering, never damaging the crop. Those who cannot not die hold you in honor as summer's sweet prophet. The muses love you, kiss you. The sun himself loves you, kisses you, and gave you the clear-voiced plow path of your song. Old age does not wear you away, wise one, earth-born, song lover, with no suffering, without spilling blood, you are so near, so like the gods. Oh, that is so beautiful. It's like it's written to a lover. That is so, so beautiful. They really loved cicadas. <laughs> yep, <laughs> they really did. Can I mention yeah. an image that came to mind of one of the strangest things I've had the honor to witness? Mm. A few years ago, I found a dead cicada. And you know those trees that have the little pink, they're like little pink flowers. Um, Mm-hmm. We have them all over the city, all over Texas. And it was a dead cicada, but it was on a bed of these pink little flowers. Mm. And I remember thinking that it looked like people did it. But I noticed that there was like a trail of ants putting these flowers around the cicada. Um, I later researched to find that when insects die, they give off a very specific gas and ants have a ritual and drop off like flowers to bury, quote unquote, their brothers and sisters and friends. Um, But sometimes non-ant creatures are bestowed the honor of like an ant burial. Wow, that's amazing, Anar. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, yeah. Ants are really incredible too. Yeah. But this reminded me of like, this poem feels like this person, this poet would definitely give a cicada Mm. a really beautiful funeral and Mm -hmm. send off because this is, this is a worshiping. Yes, it really is. And it's, I think, important that poets and poetry, one of the things I see it doing beyond just my little connection between the cicadas and this poem and the one I'm about to read, is finding the inexplicable, astonishing beauty in things that are not thought beautiful by some. I don't think that insects had the same stigma back then that they have now in this culture, but Regardless, 
poets of any era are finding deep meaning in things that are ugly or strange or terrifying. Even the darkness of your poem of Lord Byron, that was such a lush, gorgeous poem. And it was all about the end of humanity and the earth as we know it. So yeah, I know that beauty is not the only purpose of poetry. So it goes beyond beauty. I think it's depth of of meaning and just sheer wonder. Um, I want to share one more little ancient mm-hmm. piece that goes along kind of with this poem. Please do. Which, by the way, I love <laughs> this poem. Um, could reread and just read it again. But I did find out that the earliest reference to the cicada in literature, as far as we know, is supposedly from the Iliad, fame upon fame. (laughs) And when Helen is is heartbroken and, and remembering her former husband in life, she approaches the tower. And in the Iliad, it describes the old men who speak to her who are up in the tower. And I'm going to read this little short passage. They sat there on the tower, these Trojan elders, like cicadas, perched up on a forest branch, chirping soft, delicate sounds. Seeing Helen approach the tower, they commented softly to each other. Their words had wings. Their words had wings. Mm-hmm. I like the delicate chirping, mm-hmm. imagining a group of men and talking about whatever men talk about <laughs> ill <laughs> ill but 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 elders these are yeah. elders yeah this is what we know to be the first appearance of the cicada in in literature but it's such a beautiful entrance right and their words had wings really connecting the um the cicada to the idea of song and and words So it feels so much like poetry is being alluded to in that little phrase. Um, Yeah. Claire, you did your research. I did a little, a little bit of research. The oldest (laughs) mention of cicadas. (laughs) Oh, man. But summer sweet prophet, earthborn song lover, like a king, like an arrow string you sing. I mean, to be loved yeah, the way the cicada is loved by the ancient Greek poets is the dream. Yeah, it's all anybody wants. Okay, so you took us so far back that we must be born again. Yeah, I didn't really mention when it was from. I just keep saying ancient Greece, but just for the sake of, of clarity, I'll say that the life of this poet, Anacreon, is supposedly BCE 570 to 485. Oh boy. So you know when the when the numbers go from a larger number to a smaller number, we're talking about a really long time ago. So fast forward, if you will, this is my mashup, BCE 570-ish to 2021. Hmm. I want to read another poem. I know I've read from this poet before, but I just love the work of Shen Yang Fang, a Chinese poet who lives in the United States now. And Shen Yang's book came out with Copper Canyon in 2021. It's called Burying the Mountain. And 
while he is a young poet and he is writing in English, living in our time, he has such a deep connection to poets of, of a lot of different eras and ancient Chinese poetry. I read in an interview with him that his grandfather taught him to memorize and recite lines of the ancient Chinese poets, even before he knew what any of it meant. And so he had that kind of in his DNA, which is really beautiful. Should we all have been so, so blessed? But wow. this poem is titled Serenade Behind a Floating Stage. My friend called and said that sex saved him. He made me listen to streets in the Philippines waking up in rain pains and trees repeating a low note of sea chorister cage a choir captures the cadenza of falling cardamoms then a quartz of quietude so eventually it was the cue queer he said the parched skin of the quarry man whom he loved briefly for an afternoon for so long we've mistaken the cue for sea. Weeping, he then recited a passage of the Surangama Sutra, an odd phonetic transcription from the Tang Dynasty. The power, he insisted, is in the sonance, not in its meaning, its attachment. This persistent, Desperate, loud howl of August is but the insect's thirst for mating and survival. The naked nearness of a swimming pool, pulses in blue, so artificial it seems real. Wrongness. For years, my life depends on a false letter, and as consequence, instead of the quiet, a cry drills in the carnage of my heart. Had I chosen the path of Q, its hidden you might have entered me with a silence to which my heart would yield as the hollow inside an oboe. The cicadas continue practicing deft mastery of invisibility. I join their quartet. Where the moon streaks through, the night makes a sound of fabric being torn inside my head. Dark and huge. It is frightening to be alive with a song in you. Wow. I know. I was like, am I going to read from Shen Ying's book again on the podcast? And then I was like, yes. <laughs> Easy yes. Wow. Um, may I just say that the cicadas continue practicing deft mastery of invisibility. I join their quartet. Hmm. That really feels, and obviously this poem has so much going on, but those little mentions of the, of the cicadas really felt like a nod, like a very subtle nod to this tradition of writing about them. And him saying, I'm joining the quartet is almost like I'm joining this lyric tradition of poetry and song um and then references the moon so i mean we're definitely talking about the history of poetry oh my god dark and huge it is frightening to be alive with a song in you that's a little cicada they're dark and huge like you said they're off-puttingly huge and like 
before when I didn't know what a cicada was, but you would hear them. Like, mm-hmm. they sound kind of menacing and big and inexplicable. Yeah, they're sort of otherworldly. Yeah. What a beautiful Shang Fang is on a different, <laughs> different level. Um, For sure. But I do agree. It does seem like, like there's so many nods mm-hmm. and bringing ancient poetry into the 21st century. Yeah. And I love how earnest and honest it is about what it doesn't know. The poem is, but so is the speaker. He's confusing C sounds and Q sounds in the English language, which is a second language, which he didn't start learning till he was 17. So as you know, that's so much harder as an adult. And yet this beautiful poet uses the word chorister, cadenza. I mean, there is... There is a deft mastery, I would say, in it sort of rumination on on what it doesn't know. And I feel like this is the last like sort of cheesy thing I'll say about poetry through time. But for me, again, it's about the mystery of what is not known, but what is felt in Mm -hmm. our bodies, in our brains, in our spirits. So that kind of bold ability to just speak of of what one doesn't know or when one is confused is like already a big portal through which poetry can can rush in I could go on but I'll stop (laughs) oh don't stop I know this this episode is a lengthy one but Mm -hmm. it is just such a thrill to think about poetry and I went big I went apocalyptic and you went so small and there's You're just right. I didn't even think of that such a wealth and it's like the panic that I felt last night of being like I know absolutely nothing mm-hmm. despite so much dedication and yes. passion for poetry and it's such a thrill Or I know nothing and approaching every poem that you read with that, how are you not then going to be surprised and thrilled and frightened and delighted? Um, If you approach the page with, here's what I know about (laughs) the history of poetry and, you know, (laughs) I can only imagine a less enjoyable experience. It's so good. And it is just crushing. We get... You know, I guess that there isn't a national fiction month or creative nonfiction month mm. or screenwriting month. You know, we do get a poetry month. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> a bit more than than others might in the writing world and book world experience. But I just wish it was poetry month every month. I the know. programming put on by by others in our city is like thrilling all over the country. It's just one of the best months. It really is. It's such a fun excuse to get to yeah. have these kinds of conversations and do this intense marathon reading. I can't do that every single month, but it is fun that we get an excuse to go go really hard with poetry in April. Yeah, I feel lucky and I feel grateful and I hope that that others have allowed themselves to indulge. I hope that if you're listening, 
that you have read as many poetry books that you made a huge mess in your <laughs> living room or dining room or wherever you keep your books. Um, I hope that you're nervous that your big pile is going to tip over <laughs> and that you you were able to like lean in. Yeah, I mean, we don't all write poetry, but I do think that poetry is for everyone. And so reading poetry is also for everyone. Yeah, read something way outside of your real house is, is my missive. Go back, go far back and so see back. what's there. Because if you, if you don't know, you're going to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, Claire, thank you for giving me this impossible prompt that brought me so much joy and distress. You're welcome. <laughs> it was yeah. a lot of fun. Thank you for going along the ride with me and until next time. Until next time. <laughs>